Hey everybody, welcome to episode 120 of Literary Disco, Manhattan Beach. On the disco today, we discuss one of the most critically acclaimed books of 2017, Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey guys. Hey. Hey. Good to see you guys. Yeah. We just got, listeners, we just got to see uh, Julia's baby Vega. Mm-hmm. You guys are totally missing out. Adorable. Having this on video. So cute. And also her adorable husband, Greg. So cute. They're so cute. quite the duo. <laughs> how how many hours did you sleep last night, Julia? Three and a half. Three and a half hours. Oh, Jesus. For real? I had a great week and a half. And then yesterday I played with fire and ruined it all. Just cocaine and oh yeah, we party clubs and you came home and no uh, still normally like, I've I've been going to bed kind of early and then get up for this like one middle of the night wake up and then go back to sleep but instead I stayed up till the middle of the night time and then for some reason she decided that four forty five was a good time to be awake. <laughs> Well, you know, you're finally living the life that you wanted to live when you were younger and weren't as cool. Yeah. Where you're just up at 4.45 in the middle of the night and people are screaming and there's milk everywhere. Like that was... <laughs> My whole goal with the sleeping isn't like a set number of hours. It's to just never look at a clock and see any number starting with a three, four, or five. <laughs> Anything up to the two range is normal, and six o'clock on is fine. But three, four, five, no thanks. You you are doing the rationalizations of um, a person living in captivity. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, because it's also, I I mean, it's probably hard for you guys to conceptualize, but it's also like the worst part of winter in New England, where it's just kind of bleak for four months. Like, it's not fun snow Christmas. It's just, it's been, it was like negative five degrees two weeks ago. You know, today it was 17. And I was like, ooh, Mm -mm. maybe it's warm enough to go for a walk because it's 17 degrees out. So there is an inherent level of uh, captivity. But now people in New England are pretending they're Danish and getting into the concept of which is like being cozy around your fireplace, but it's really just a survival mechanism. They're they're pretending they're Danish. So there's this Let's Danish learn. concept. Have you guys? Not- we're even whiter than we were before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe this isn't touching you guys over there because you don't have winter, but it's like a really <laughs> trendy concept um, of Danish coziness. Where you like snuggle up with your blankets. It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. Um, and people are really into it. Why is it different than just snuggling up in their blankets? Like what makes it? Right. Because the unique. Danish have a word for it. So of course we have to go <laughs> insane for it. Don't we have a word too? It's called snuggling? Yeah. <laughs> it's more than that. It's more than that. It's like. Is it just, is this like an Instagram phenomenon? Is it because people are like hashtagging that word and taking photos of yes. them looking awesome? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this all goes back to that poet, Rupi, what's her yes. name? Yes. This Rupi is all Kapoor. about Rupi. Yeah. Who's got three books or something on the LA Times or New York Times bestseller? You know, I actually saw um, 
if you t- there's a there's like a ripoff poem poetry book that has come out that is like you know because her book her first book was called like milk and honey or something yeah. and it had like right. this sort of whimsical line drawing on the cover there are like ripoff versions of it now that you can oh get God. at bookstores or you can get online like parody where like versions are, pu- like other publishers are racing to like create confusion with like another ethnic person, you know, ethnic name with like, and I, I sw- I'm going to look this up, but I, I, I don't have it off the tip of my tongue, but it was like not milk and honey, but you know, something just, just something and something else, just the same sort of level of like cozy hipsterness. It's like, oh my God, this is going to be, co- I mean, cause it, almond milk and Nutella. It's well, it's just, it's <laughs> such a thing. I mean, everybody is buying it. Um, you know, everyone's obsessed with, with her poetry. Oh, it's so depressing. <laughs> Well, you know what? It's okay. People love poetry. People are buying books. We got to keep our eye on the prize. That's right. Eye on the prize. Right. Eye on the prize, Ryder. 2018, yep. everybody. 2018. Uh, <laughs> so, Ryder, <laughs> you just got back from Sundance. Yeah. Speaking of keeping your eye on the prize, you know what the great movies are that are going to be coming out this year. What, what did you see? What was awesome? Um, everything I saw was really good. The, the best movie was a movie from Denmark um, called The Guilty. And... Uh, I, I I went in pretty blind. I just knew that it was a thriller and it was, you know, in Danish. So I was like, oh, well, this is something I would never see outside of Sundance. So let's go. And it was phenomenal. Huge standing ovation. Um, the whole movie is one guy, like an emergency services operator, you know, essentially a 911. Uh, or he's a cop who's been demoted to being a 911 uh, uh, receiver. Um, and the movie never leaves the office he's sitting in on the phone. Oh, wow. And it is amazing. It is so much better than other movies that have tried to do this sort of thing, like Locke. I don't know if you saw that a couple years ago. Um, That that got a lot of critical attention with Tom Hardy. And I thought it was okay. It was good. This takes it to another level. This is um, incredible. And it, it ends up being... Almost, even though the the visuals are just on this guy's face, and you know maybe a couple he interacts with, him, but it's mostly just him on the phone, and it's the voices that he's hearing you hear, and um, it's the the afterwards the director talked about being inspired by podcasts and uh, in particular Serial, and he's absolutely right. It ends up the end of by the end of the movie, you've ex- you've visualized so many things, you've used your imagination in a way that you never get to do when you watch movies. So it ends up being like a new form of storytelling. And yet also what the the actor, the lead actor is so good that watching him and his face is also just as thrilling. So it becomes almost like this new form of filmmaking and film watching. And of course these guys are just out of film school, the team that made it. um, So for them, it was just a way to, to, you know, a way to sort of make a cheap movie and circumvent the, the, the Hollywood bullshit or just raising the money. But it it ends up being something so much more beautiful, and that ends up being like this new form of like I said, it's like storytelling. It's like you're sort of you're on the edge of your seat the whole time, and you want it's almost like you want to plug your ears the same way you want to look away from other movies because mm. it's so horrifying and scary, and all you're watching is a guy on the fucking phone. It's awesome. Is it is it subtitled? Or yeah, yeah. Is it in English, and okay. it's already been picked up by Magnolia Pictures, so it will get a release. So I highly recommend if it gets any release. And then, of course, mm-hmm. I'm sure. I, I think I heard that they are gonna remake it. You know, so it'll be starring Colin Farrell in a year, and it'll suck. But <laughs> the original is great. The original is wonderful. I saw Colin Farrell seems like bad. Yeah. Guess. The other big movie that I saw is called Hereditary, which is going to be a huge hit. Um, I think it's a horror film with Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne 
And it's one of these like, uh, you know, a thrill, a second, like it's full of amazing directing. It's beautiful. It's fun. It is, it makes no sense. It is so <laughs> dumb. It's like by the end, you're just like, wait a minute. What about all these other threads that you start? Oh, who cares? So if you like, like horror movie, like if you liked it, you will like hereditary. It's the same sort okay. of like nonsensical, ah, scary thing and characters doing things that make no sense, but it's scary and fun to watch. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then I saw this Boots Riley film. Boots Riley is, is the guy from The Roots. And this is his first film called Sorry to Bother You. That is insane. And it will be a huge cult hit. Um, it's uh, it's going to be sort of, I think it'll be sort of swept up with Get Out because it's a black filmmaker making a very political film with some surrealist sort of out there qualities. But it's incredibly different. It should not be in the same category at all. Um it is a completely different tone and a completely different um, uh, style, but uh, it's it's the craziest, like one of the craziest films I've ever seen. Um, so I'm sure it's it's destined for cult status. Uh, yeah, I saw a lot of good movies. Awesome. Uh, but those are the three that are definitely worth worth talking about. Awesome. I can't wait to uh, to see many of them in three years when they are on HBO. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, Sunday the the rate of Sundance like has gone so much faster. Like movies just come out. Like last year, the big hit movie or one of the big hit movies um, was I don't want to live in this world anymore, and it was on Netflix like six weeks after Sundance. So wow. um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the fact that Amazon and Netflix are are some of the biggest buyers now, and they just turn turn these movies right around. They yeah. don't waste any time. Um, but you know, you never know. I feel like every year at Sundance, I th I feel like, oh, I've I've seen or I've heard about or I've had the conversations about all the movies that are going to be the big ones this year, and then a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't translate um, to to the the, the the mainstream public. Um, so you never you never know. Um, so do you, I wouldn't do you be surprised think, if Hereditary is a big hit, though. Do you think mm. that the the buzz that happens at a place like Sundance is fed so by the insular. fact that, that everyone that is there is in the business for the most part? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you just you, you you realize like your expectations when you're at Sundance are on a completely different level. Like you just you just walk into a movie for some uh, you know because you've heard the word on the street or some director or actor or some and like your expectation level is just completely different than when you're a consumer. Uh, you know, as a consumer, you go to a movie because you saw a trailer or right. it's just a different mindset. I just don't. I, I, it, and so it's really hard to sort of gauge like the difference between those two things. Like Sundance is basically a, you know, it, it's even though it, it, it has like such mainstream appeal and everybody knows about it, And I feel like there are a lot of um, news reports that kind of make it to the public. It still feels very industry. It still feels like people are making movies for other industry people and mm. sort of showcasing that. And, you know, you get, you end up seeing films like I saw this, um, uh, pretty experimental film called Madeline's Madeline. So for the first 45 minutes is incredibly infuriating because they're using sound design and like extreme close-ups that are going in and out of focus to try and like get you in the mindset of somebody with mental illness. And, um, and the plot is like really disjointed. This, there's no real scenes. There's just like snippets of scenes. And I was like, I, I, I might have to walk out. Like I, I literally can't handle this movie. And then it turned into something so beautiful and sort of harmonizes at the end. And I was like, totally won over. And I will like, no one will ever see this movie. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's just one of those things. I'm like, wow. And, and then you watch the, 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 the cast and the filmmakers get up at the end and they know that like she wanted to make the, 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 the director wanted to make this movie um, 
for the people that will like this movie. Like it's, you know, it's just that art niche sort of thinking, you know, at one point she's like, how many poetry readers are in the audience? Mm -hmm. And you know, you look around and there's like 10 of us raising our (laughs) hand. And then she's like, okay, well I wanted to make this like a, be like a poem. And it's like, Oh right. You're only aiming for the 10 of of us, you know? And like, that's just a completely different mentality that that's why Sundance exists or film festivals exist. And you know, you have to just look at the movie like that with a completely different mindset. Um, and it's fun, you know, and, and the acting was incredible. The acting was brilliant. You know, the strange so. thing is that, um, you know, right around the same time that Sundance is going on, the Palm Springs International Film Festival is happening here where I live. And it is a completely opposite thing. It is an international film festival, so the majority of the films are foreign. But there's a huge component of just a bunch of Hollywood celebrities coming out and doing talks and talking about mm. their current films. And the audience that shows up for the Palm Springs International Film Festival are people who want autographs. You know? Interesting. It's yeah. and there's like a big gala and people in black tie. It's like access, right? Yes. Yeah. It, so it's a totally different thing uh, where it's you know, it it's actually is Hollywood versus mm-hmm. the, the craft side of things. And you only see the craft right. side and you've been at this one, uh, at the short film festival that they do in the summertime, then it's it's that sort of artisanal discussions yep. on craft um yeah so it, it's always this juxtaposition because you know like i'll i'll read deadline or variety or whatever they'll be talking about sundance they'll be talking about the palm springs film festival and in one picture there's like you know brad pitt and angelina jolie and um nicole kidman looking gorgeous and everything's right and the lighting is right <laughs> in the next picture there's a bunch of people with scraggly beards trudging <laughs> through the snow you know Right, and it's it's like oh, there's there are the two sides of the filmmaking machine in, in yep. perfect harmony. <laughs> yeah, it's a very odd thing. Yeah, and you know Sundance definitely has this level of Hollywood bullshit, too, right? You know, right. red rope parties and like, but I yeah, it's 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 its own beast, and I I feel like you know this is my third year in a row, and I hadn't gone for a long time. I went in the early early 2000s actually the first time i went to sundance was in the 90s when i was a kid my brother's movie my brother was in a movie that was there uh the year that el mariachi played oh my god um yeah so it was like one of the founding like one of the first like that's big a, sundance that's a you know movie. a movie made for yeah i got to see it too i was at the premiere of el mariachi that's a good movie. when i was 10 that, or that 11 that was inappropriate for you <laughs> yes um but uh it's i feel like it's gotten better i i, I you know i i you know i it's sundance is like one of those things like Burning Man, where it's like, oh, it was so great 10 years ago before it became commercialized. And, you know, but now it's like, no, I, I, I feel like it's actually gotten more interesting, especially as the world has, I think, become more political. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or America, America has become more political. Your average American has become more politically aware. And there, you know, last year there was just a huge turnout for the Women's March at Sundance. And then this year they did it again. And there's just this, um, this year especially, there was a sense of real, uh, you know, Sundance always has had a political agenda and had this sort of activist edge to it. And this year it just feels so relevant. It feels so relevant. You know, it's like, okay, you know, here's all these industry people and we're all kind of getting into this town, looking at each other going like, how can we make this better? How can we make this better? Like, how can we use our art to change this and do something? And like every conversation I had was, was around that question is really. That's exciting. That is exciting. So exciting and fun. Yeah, I feel like, you know, when in the early 2000s, when you are seeing a, you know, some documentary about some small subculture, 
and you're just like, I feel like there, there was a tendency to kind of roll your eyes and be like, who's listening? Who cares? You know, like, how is this going to change the world? And now we're all like, no, 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 we have to do whatever we can to change the world. So it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice shift. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It, it, it turns out also that um, we really need to change the world this time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, because, there's a new urgency. Yeah, because mm -hmm. what, what will happen next year at Sundance is they'll be like, oh, they're all there. Block the access to the roads. <laughs> Drop the napalm. We'll get rid of, we'll get rid of some of them. Well, in that happy um, segue, I think we can talk about the book we were going to talk yeah. about. Yeah. All right. So, Manhattan Beach is Jennifer Egan's fifth novel. Um, she also has a collection of short stories. Um, it came out last year to a lot of acclaim. Uh, it was on the long list for the National Book Award and uh, made a bunch of top ten lists. Uh, Story-wise, it's uh, set in Brooklyn in 1942. Our uh, main character is Anna, a 19-year-old who is helping the war effort, uh, working at the docks uh, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And she's stuck in an office measuring tiny metal parts, but she uh, begins to long for something more adventurous, something physical. And she's drawn to the divers, um, the uh, men who are putting on these impossibly heavy suits and sinking below the surface to repair ships. And she starts to work her way to being the first woman diver. Um, and then meanwhile, there's her father, Eddie, who has been missing for several years due to uh, some shady gangster connections. Um, there's, um, she has a sister who is physically disabled and unable to speak and is being taken care of constantly back at her small apartment where she lives with her mother. And then there is the gangster Dexter Styles, whom Anna runs into at one of his nightclub, and she realizes that he may or may not have something to do with the disappearance of her father. I think those are all the threads. Um, it's been a while since I read this book. I actually read it about four or five months ago when we first talked about reading it. So I'm glad you guys finally got around to finishing it. Uh, what do you think? Uh, here's Ooh. the thing. Here's the thing. Um, a Visit from the Goon Squad was one of the most remarkable books I've ever read. Fundamentally it altered was. my view about what you can do in a book of fiction. Mm -hmm. High bar. High bar. For yeah, no kidding. High bar. <laughs> and then this was just, it was fine. <laughs> you know, it was... Uh, mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have, I had, I had some problems with it. I mean, it, it was, it was a good book, um, but I had some, I had some real issues with some aspects of the way it was put together. Um, some of the storytelling bothered me. Um, some of the gangster stuff, which you know, I'm, I have an I expertise was wondering. in. <laughs> some of the gangster <laughs> stuff annoyed me. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, and um, I, it felt like here. Here's the thing. If I'd never read anything by Jennifer Egan before, I'd been like, oh, this is an amazing book. This is She's really done a wonderful job here. But because she shifted a paradigm with her last book, I expected this, once I realized that it was not a book that takes place in Manhattan Beach, Los Angeles, I expected this to just be some sort of world changer. And it's just a solid book of historical literary fiction with not a lot of drama and not not any surprises and some weird cliches that I didn't like. Hmm. Julia, what did you think? I felt I I'm in the similar uh, 
boat, although probably slightly more positive, in that I really loved a visit from the Goon Squad. And I think that her writing, I mean, there are some phrases and lines that I, there are some that I marked in the book and there are some that I just remember because mm-hmm. they were so amazing. So, I mean, what I feel about Jennifer Egan in general, and I read The Keep too, is like oh, her writing the keep is, is really so, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. her writing is so perfect. Mm-hmm. It's so effortless sounding. Um, but I was surprised for someone that I feel could tell any story. I was curious and surprised why she told this one. Now, that being said, all the diver stuff, all the amazing. like World amazing. War II. Amazing. All amazing. Of, actually, the historical fiction is the part that I found most exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I did have the distracting thought. Knowing you, I'd be like, I don't know what Todd's going to think of all these gangsters, <laughs> um, <laughs> since that's your jam. Um, but yeah, I too was like waiting for some, you know, mind blower. But instead, it was just like a really good novel. I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about good who I'm trying. Yeah, who mm. I would recommend this to. I would recommend this to people who like like really good novels who read a lot of novels. But if I were like, if you have to read one book this year, I would not probably pick this no you know, I would. No, and you know the, the i kept thinking like the stuff where she is diving is amazing yeah. and i could have just read a novel specifically just about the diving and it would have been awesome um and the writing that she does um she must have gone and done it by the way I, and i don't know if this is true but the the level of detail of what it was like to be underwater and have that suit on and all that. She had to do a tremendous. I'm pretty sure she did. I'm pretty sure she did. If it's not, if it's not in this acknowledgement, it was in a New Yorker article that I read. Yeah, that she, uh, cool. that she did go and actually do. She it. must I, have. I feel like, yeah. And also, and it's really claustrophobic. But while it's claustrophobic, it's also extraordinarily poetic and meaningful to read about this woman doing this thing because there is the um, there's the tactile experience of what she's doing, but then there's also the metaphor of you know like the great adrian rich poem diving into the wreck of her being this woman doing this thing that is not meant for her according to society and, right. and doing it better than everybody else um but i didn't need a 440 page novel to get to that i mean yeah. i'm actually surprised we could get back to the book in a second but i'm surprised <laughs> there isn't more great writing about diving because i i'm scuba certified have you ever dived either of you um not scuba diving. I, I, you know, like, you know, you go to Hawaii or You've something. You've done snorkeling. You snorkel, yeah. Yeah. But it is the most. Uh, yeah, I've done it. It's amazing. It's the most sensory. It's, there's nothing else in the universe like it at all, especially in terms of like sound and being alone in your head, listening to your own breathing, sucking in amazing oxygen. I'd pass out. I would, I'd, yeah. I would freak me out. I'd be too nervous. It's not for everyone. I couldn't do it on. I couldn't do it on this level. Like we have to put on these kinds of suits yeah. and like go into like disgusting muddy water and find to, your father's oh, watch. No, that's a, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, exactly. The people that like dive for dead no. bodies are nope. just like, nope. to me, like that is the most terrifying yeah. concept I've ever had. Uh, I, but yeah, when I, when I've, when I've dived, it's always been in like some Manta beautiful rays spot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're looking at a beautiful fish and coral reef. You feel like you're flying. Right. It's just the most incredible experience. Uh, I actually, I did, I did scuba diving as my PE requirement at Columbia. <laughs> they, allowed you, they allowed you to scuba dive. I was like, hell yeah, get me certified. So I'm just going to a pool at Columbia. 
And then I have all this, like, they, they made us break, you know, get wetsuits and have all the gears. And then I have all this scuba gear on the subway every night going back. Oh, I remember where? Yeah, it was weird. Um, but yeah, it is a truly, it's, you know, it's like a sensory deprivation tank. I mean, that's what right. it is, right? It's like, it removes, it removes sound. And, and you, if, if the temperature is right, you don't feel the water in the, so you feel like you're on an alien planet or something. It's so amazing. What, what, what um, uh, did you think of the book, Ryder? What, um, what were your big thoughts? Well, I, I'm, I'm with, I'm with Julia in that on a pure prose sentence by sentence level, I don't think there's anything better. She's anybody great. better yeah, she's writing great. today. I think she is perfect. I think she sets scenes and develops characters and makes me care about things quicker than anybody. And um, so I will read anything she writes. And this, I think I, I probably gave her a lot of lot more credit than maybe I should have. Um, but I think it's brilliant. I, I loved it. And um, I, yeah, I mean, I have, I have some, some weirder thoughts about this book that I, we can get into later, but like, I think, I think some of the cliche-ness that you mentioned, Todd, and I think some of the historical self, like, I think some of the historical stuff is self-conscious. Mm. And I, I actually think she's doing something on another level there um, than just trying to write a typical literary fiction set in a historical period. I think she's writing about our sense of history. Um, and I, I can get into that a little, I'm not really sure what I even mean by that, but I can talk about that more. But like, um, I, I agree. There were moments where I was like, oh, she just, she just spent like a lot of time in the library and is using the like brand names that she picked up from, you know, oh, what kind of soap did somebody mm -hmm. use back in 1942? And then like she inserted mm -hmm. that or how did gangster. So there were moments that made me kind of aware of that. And I don't know if it's just because my critical hat was on and I was thinking about it too much. But then there were so many other moments like the diving sequences you guys have already talked about, but also just like um, sort of basic scene writing. Like there's an amazing lovemaking scene. Where she has an um, orgasm like a seizure? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I find that amazing. This book is I find, beautiful, I find man. That like, concerning. <laughs> okay. Uh, bike riding, for instance. Yeah. Uh, she talks yes. about bike riding or like there's a sequence where she's dancing with different guys and, a and like they're so vivid in my memory. Like I feel like I lived these experiences and I just, you know, sh that's why she's the best is that she can, she has an ability to draw me. I mean, the keep was such a mm. weird world that she drew me into and the goon squad too. She takes us into, you know, the future and she was yeah, so prescient. Like she, she was. was, she nailed the future. It like that was ten years ago, and she was writing about like internet influencers. And um, I, there's just I, so I feel like I really, um, I really went with her in this book, and and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every second of it. Um, but maybe I'm giving her too much credit. Well, I'm sure. I think I just want to read like a line that I marked because what I think where she really like cuts through everything is when she's just making an or not. Ordinary observation that's just so perfect. So in this, this is like a quarter of the way into the book and Dexter the gangster is like totally disconnected from his own grown daughter. Mm -hmm. And he's like trying to get her to go for a walk on the beach with him. Um, and he says, I'm asking a favor. He said, I need your help. And this next couple lines, I was like, oh, this is pure Jennifer Egan. Her curiosity was a well whose waterline often seemed a long way down. But at the word help, Dexter heard the splash. It's like catching her interest. Oh, it's just, it's so right. perfect. You know, and it has nothing right. to do with the plot or it being a historical novel or blah, blah, blah. It's just she knows, she understands how people think and act and speak. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And it's also, it's not, I mean, it's an incredible use of language, but it's not purple prose. Right. Do you know what yes. I mean? Like it's not, it's not like crazy vocabulary. It's like pretty basic actually. Yeah. And it's a really just a great metaphor being perfectly executed in, in plain language. It's yes. She's the yes. best. Yes. See, and I, I, I agree because even things just like, this is uh, a line that I marked. Uh, this is in uh, chapter seven where the gangsters are talking about essentially what they're going to become. Um, and what America will become um, will emerge from this war victorious and unscathed and become bankers to the world. We'll export our dreams, our language, our culture, our way of life, and it will prove irresistible. I mean, it, it's great because obviously she's lived post-World War II, so she knows what became of that. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it, it distills the, um, the idea of America, I think, into... Uh, two very easy sentences um, and in a very direct and honest way. And she does that. I, her expository writing is extraordinarily um, moving in many ways because she she's able to wrap emotion and uh, fact into truth, if that makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and I, I, I love that stuff. Where, where it gets hard for me um, is, is things like the disabled sister. Um, so th mm -hmm. there's um, there's a subplot that Anna, the main character, has um, a disabled sister. And when you find out how and why she's even more profoundly disabled than she was at birth, it, it means more. But um, she's just sort of this nonverbal shell of a human being that exists. And there's a scene where Anna and Dexter, the gangster, take her to the ocean and suddenly she becomes the magical disabled person who can suddenly speak upon seeing the ocean. And it opens up feelings for both Anna and Dexter. Oh, she doesn't actually speak, does she? Yeah, she says words. And because there's that moment where Anna's like, oh my God, she's saying things. And then afterwards, of course, when the uh, when she's dying and the people are coming in and sitting in her room, they'd say, oh see the water you know the, the things that she had mumbled or whatever and it just i was just like oh come on you know this is the idea that she's magically transformed by the ocean for this last gasp of humanity before she dies and that all she needed to see was the sea which is where um you know which matters so much to anna and that in fact matters so much to her, their father eddie as well i was just like that you don't even need it in the book. You don't even need that character in the book necessarily, except for this bit with Eddie. Okay, um, see, I think that's essential because here's 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 my take on the whole book. That it's about the way that we are passengers in history. Like the and and like she, as this unspeaking witness, is is sort of like the ultimate example of of not being able to participate in like something bigger than yourself. Mm. Um, like not, uh, just being sort of swept along and not being able to change the course of history. And that's what I mean. I think this book is very much about our relationship to history uh, looking back. And also when we're in a moment in our lives, looking out to the sort of bigger narratives that we're being swept up by. Um, there's a couple passages that really, but really made me but see this is the thing i mean I, I i agree with you but then i'm like well she's just becomes then the magical mute you know she mm -hmm. becomes the the magical witness for herself she doesn't she's not a character she's a metaphor and 
I think they all are. That's what I'm saying. Like I, 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 I think there's something, and I'm like I said, I'm probably giving her too much credit. But here, here's a pass. Here's a passage on 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 page two eleven where it's just Anna talking. She's she's talking about books that she's read, mm-hmm. and I, I really like what I, what I did is I underlined this and then I wrote in the back. Is she self conscious of the pulpiness of her own novel? And here's what it is. It's um, here was the mystery that seemed now to have been flashing coded signals at Anna from behind every Agatha Christie and Rex Stout and Raymond Chandler she'd read. Becoming aware of this deeper story made it burn through the allegorical surface of whatever plot she was reading until she found herself not reading at all, mm-hmm. but holding the book and remembering, puzzling. And like that was like, oh, is this kind of like what she's doing with this whole gangster plot and like missing dad and you know, all these sort of tropes that, that feel familiar and not, not that fresh and, and feel very sort of 1942, you know, like here's right. a movie with, yeah. a, you know, I was like, cause, cause I, it's not like Jennifer Egan has a shortage of imagination when it comes to, I mean, she created future worlds right. and, and strange magical stuff. So like this, it's a very conscious choice for her to inhabit this, this specific of a sort of cliched world. And okay. And then on 298 is a moment where she, where Anna touches the boat for the first time. And it says in touching its hull, Anna had touched the war directly for the first Mm -hmm. time, felt the vehemence of its pulse. And then this other passage where, um, Dexter Stiles is on the boat and he's looking up at the sky. He thought of the ocean as it looked on pilot charts, crowded with the depth contours and shipping lanes and the arcs of current. There seemed no relation between those images and the emptiness surrounding him now. Overhead was the extravagant canopy of stars that had so astounded him when he first went to sea, a shimmering excess like the inside of Ali Baba's cave. Viewed from the deck of the ship, that sky was a spectacle reserved for those privileged enough to see it. Now the stars looked random, accidental, like the sea itself. And so what I kept thinking is like, there's this like religious desire or like spiritual desire that's kind of fake in these characters to like be a part of something bigger and Mm. things out of their reach and that are dictating their futures you know and this is i think this is this really weird thing that that jennifer egan is doing because she's writing a period piece and we're reading a period piece um you know the, the the act of doing that is like you're positioning these characters in a larger collective narrative. That's what she does when she's writing. And that's what we're doing when we're reading it. You know, like we know world war two stories, we know about the docks and stuff. So we're like reading this woman diver, this gangster, you know, economy. And so we're looking back at this larger narrative and then we're trying to enjoy the human level, all the little details and the emotions and the relationships and the props they get to use. But then what Jennifer Egan does is have her characters doing the reverse where they're all, they're all looking up and like longing to be elevated to something greater than them and they're like reaching for the narratives that that are bigger than the scale of their own lives which is like the reverse of what so we're sort of like meeting them in the middle as readers we're looking down and they keep looking up at us and like that those moments and like it's just the whole book like kind of opened up for me in this weird like I don't know. It it, it, it it says something to me that I haven't felt in a long time about books where, you know, and of course, like we were talking about earlier, feeling myself in this, this political politicized moment this year where I am so aware of the larger narratives that are going on around me and my position as like this, you know, small piece of that. And like, <laughs> how can I reach it? It's like, I felt, I felt like 
I, I, I don't know. I feel like Egan was playing with that all very, very consciously. That is a deep read. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, it's, that's really interesting and I'm still absorbing it on my 3.5 hours of sleep, but yeah. I, I like that you I go feel that like... you're on decimals though. Not three and a half, 3.5. No, <laughs> you're on the metric um, system no matter what. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I think that what I'm like catching on writer is that, so writing about the ocean and writing about the sea is like, oh man, there's nothing more sentimental. There's nothing more cliche. I mean, it is a big gamble to write about how much people love the sea. Right. Um, but sentimentality is inherently optimistic. You know, it's saying like you can personally affect history and history can personally affect you. Yes. Um, and I think like I I buy it. I mean, she seems smart enough to do that. And you know, it's it takes me right back to Lincoln and the Bardo, which is similarly optimistic. Right, I mean, maybe right. what is coming out of these very dark historical times that we feel that we're in right now is this extreme optimism that has to plow us through our own, our own dark <laughs> ocean of sadness. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, we're so like conditioned to think that positivity and optimism is stupid, but it's we're all kind of holding onto it like a life raft at the moment. So that and, is, you know, it I, is interesting. I, I think what you said, Ryder, is interesting and, and deep and profound. And then I also think, was she like sitting there at her desk and thinking, "This is what I'm going to do. The reader is going to be staring down." <laughs> Like, who knows, right? No, not necessarily, but I think but, that... She, but, no, but I it, mean, of course not. But that's what but, literature does, right? Is It right. allows us to feel that way regardless. You know, it, right. it gives you, writer, that moment where you yes. can say, if I were in that position, maybe that's what I would feel. Or, or this mm-hmm. is right. what I need to look at the world and think that I can affect something larger. Here's this right. woman diving under the water and working on these boats, and she is playing a role in the great war of our time. Um, yep. And it's a little piece, but it's a fundamental piece. And don't we all want to feel like we're a fundamental piece to something larger? Yeah. So, I, I mean, that that sounds that your 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 positing sounds accurate, but it's still just a it's still just a book, you know. <laughs> it's still, still just a story at the end of the day that has to work from you know A to Z. Um, and I think it, I mean I think it's a good book. I I think artistically. And and I know this is something all three of us worry about. It's like, at, at what point are you, can, can you just write something that's good and not as great as the other thing that you have done? Or does it, do you always need to be changing things and improving? Or can you just write this story, whatever this story is, because it interests you? Well, see, but I think, like, I think that you're, I guess my, my basic point like on a really basic level is that it's not it's not like this gritty realist literary uh or gritty realist historical fiction do you know what i mean like right. it's not like it's I, I i believe a that the heart to it yes and i also feel like the characters are sort of intentionally yeah romanticized and in a way yeah. you know obviously you have like lincoln and the bardo and the extreme end of non-realism right, right. you have like you, and and but i and i feel like if you walk into this book wanting what it sounds like you were looking for, Todd, which is a historical fiction, like you want it to feel very real and like lived in and sort of human. 
And I think that she, I, I don't think, I think at a certain point she let go of that and was okay with making a sort of more allegorical mm -hmm. exercise out of, of, you know, but at the same time, I think she, she knew that, that people would want to read historical fiction. So I feel like she actually managed to make a bestseller, which everyone's going to be reading as this sort of like fun historical fiction that also... Um, I think works on this other level, but you know, like I said, I think maybe, maybe I'm just giving her too much credit, but having read Goon Squad and the keep, it, it feels like, yeah, cause she's not doing something formally as crazy as she did in those books. You know, there's no magical realism no. in this book. There's no, there's no futurism. There's no theoretical like manipulation going on. So, so I can't help but add it at least on some level. Um, and I, because I think her brain has to work in that way, but I don't know, and, and maybe uh, maybe only time will tell. But also, you know, you got I get I give her props because she's like, well, I'm going to write this World War II book or this book that takes place in the 1940s. Yeah. It's about a family, and I'm Jennifer Egan. I can do the fuck I want. You know? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Too. I like that. Yeah, because and she spent I, years researching it. Apparently, oh, she had to have. She had to. Yeah. Have. And I think you know, I'm thinking about another writer who. So when I read. Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. I was like, oh my God, holy shit, this book is crazy. I love mm. it. And then I read like three other books by him and they were like really similar. And it made me think less of all of them rather yeah, than. He only had one mode, kind you know. Of. Right, yeah. exactly. So this only contributes to the idea that I already said that she can do anything and she's just choosing what she likes, which I think is really cool. You know, what a cool kind of fiction writer to be. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. those are the people I look up to the most, right? Because, like, my favorite filmmaker is P.T. Anderson. And every time I go to see one of his mm -hmm. movies, I am like, what the fuck was that? I walk out of the theater going like, <laughs> oh, and then I have to see it again. And then I have to think about it again. And then eventually it becomes my favorite movie. Like, besides Inherent Vice, which is a complete piece of... Oh, it's horrible. Or not, oh, horrible. it's a complete piece of shit. But <laughs> horrible. other than that, every single movie that he's done has not been like the movie I liked that he did before, you know? So yeah. it always is up in the end. It's like a great band that you like. If they put out the same album, like as they did the last one, it's like, at first you're so happy because it sounds just like the stuff you already listened to. And then right. it just ends up on the pile of crap that you never listened to again. Whereas if a, if a band takes you somewhere you haven't been before, that's, that's real artistry. And yeah. So I, I went deep on this journey with her because I'm such a fan, I guess, is the bottom let line. Me I, my only real, like, total complaint is the uh is the gangsters say scram now mick <laughs> <laughs> hey there you scram um, go on dollface scram did anyone ever say scram has anyone ever said scram in their life come on now scram you what about the you polak the dumb blonde with pin curls oh, I'm telling you, it has to be self-conscious. You really think that she's not that good of a writer? Like, you don't think that she knows what she's doing? I have no idea. I give her... S I, I come I on. Because the second you introduce gangster characters and you, they really do say things like scram and have Tommy guns and like... I don't know, man. I, I just think she had to know what she was doing. I, I really... She was playing with B-movie cliches. But you know, and like, you know what I thought, though, with it? Is that as I was reading, I was like, this actually will be a better movie than it is a novel because I think you mm -hmm. can get away with some of this stuff with, so Dexter is not, so Dexter is the main gangster in, uh, in the book, but he's surrounded by other gangsters who are more profound goonish cliches than, um, than mm -hmm. he is himself, but you can, he's also smarter than everybody else. And so I was like, 
in a movie, like you'd see him recognizing that he is larger than this world of morons that he is a part of. Because he realizes that in the book as well. But there's still people saying, now scram you, Polak. Um, and it's, I think it's harder to, <laughs> it's harder to just be like, oh, come on. So maybe it, she is satirizing it. Um, but it, I like those, those parts, like, I like the Dexter parts, but the, the, some of the, like the nightclub stuff, I was like, yeah, or the Mr. Q business where he's there canning fruits and stuff. I'm like, oh, come on. This is, these are such cliches. Right. Straight out of like the Godfather yeah. too. <laughs> and the thing, so here's, here's my thing. <laughs> these cliches in gangster about gangsters are not cliches because they're based on historical fact of gangsters. They're cliches based on the Hollywood, the, the Hollywood representation of gangsters. Yeah. Right? And so I'm always, you know, you see it a lot. And, you know, I, in my own books, I try to make fun of it. Um, but so maybe that is the thing that Jennifer Egan is doing because Jennifer Egan is clearly smarter than I am. So she clearly knows that she's writing this B-movie stuff because there's that part you read. And, you know, Anna's talking about her, you know, she's reading Ellery Queen and she's taking out mysteries every day from the library and returning them yeah. because, you know, it, it, it gives her some order in her world. Um, so, I mean, it it's I suppose it's possible that Jennifer Egan is, is poking fun at these cliches in order to make us ask these larger questions. But then I wonder, do most people ask those larger questions when they're reading a book? Or are they just reading the book? I don't think she's... Sure. I, you know what? It's not that she's poking fun at the cliches. I think she's utilizing them to draw us into a romantic vision of the past. I think she's exploiting the way that we think of 1942 as contemporary Americans. And I think that she's doing so in order to sell more books and to draw people into her story more so that where you meet these characters is in their like most human moments. Like when she's diving sure. or when Dexter's driving and just thinking like those end up being the most profound moments. Like the actual scenes where they like engage with like the hard scrabble, you know, diving instructor and like those scenes, like they're like bad movie moments mm-hmm. that, that, that she's inserting to, to and I, I do think that there's a level of artifice to them. That's intentional. Like the way the diving thing works out where it's like, the one woman and the one black man are going to help each other. You know, it's like this sort of allegorical historical approach to history. That's like, to me, very heavy handed. Like, I don't think that that was intended to be realistic in some way. But like, she I think also she has like that to be like two magical black threads. People. You know, the, the, there's two magical black people in this book. Mm-hmm. There's the magical disabled person. Right. And, and so I, yeah. Maybe she is hanging a lantern over these cliches, but the average reader who picks up this book just is, I I don't know. I mean, maybe our listeners can tell us, do you think these cliches are there to poke fun at the cliche or are they Mm. just there? I have no idea. What did you think, Julia? Do you think they're cliches for the cliche's sake as writer and I devolve? (laughs) I think, I think either way that's, you know, the novel, and that's what Jennifer Egan is benefiting from. You know, if she really wanted to destroy these cliches, she wouldn't have used them. Um, that's how I feel about that. But, I mean, this the, the book is also... <laughs> Forrest Gump right there. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> that's all I have to say. Um, but, done. you know, the book is also, like, derived from not only these, like, godfathery type movie tropes, but, I mean, I, I brought this up when we talked about... Um, 
uh, the Italian book, My Brilliant Friend. But I mean, this is also like sh- a straight shot from A Tree Goes in Brooklyn. Um, really, I mean, like even the ma- like the plucky brunette poor girl. I mean, every single character um, is from something else almost. So, you know, I buy that it's it's being used to draw people in and everything. But like, why? Why would you have to do that? Why not just write more original characters? Because that's hard. <laughs> sure. No, because um, I think she's playing with the way we think about the past. Like the way that you and yeah. I, who have no connection to 1942 besides like family stories or whatever, the way we vision envision World War II at this point is purely through movies and stories and cliches. And I think that she's activating them. That's why I, I take... I'm not, I, I'm not saying, Todd, that, that she's making fun of the cliche. She's not. She's activating them. It's like a different mm. thing. It's like she's pushing them and, and enlarging them almost to sort of draw us in so that we're looking down at these lives while they have these moments where they look out of their cliches at us. And, and it's all about how we get caught up in the sweep oh. of history and whether we can affect it. So basically, the cliches are breaking the fourth wall and looking at the reality yes. of their life. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And they're, so they're, they're like, sort of calling out to us from the page, like, we're just a story. Do you want to mean anything? And that's why the ending, I found the ending, like, mm-hmm. I don't want to, spoiler spoiler alert, turn this off if you're not going to. When Dexter dies, it's so anticlimactic. Yeah. It's so just like, he's the hero and he has like the greatest night of his life. And then it's just like over. And then it's like, how can we affect history? How do we, how do we mean anything? How do we matter? How much money do we need to make? How much political influence do we need to have? How much can we affect the war effort? Like, I feel like these giant questions are left at the end of the book and you have to like wrestle with them if you care about these people as real people. If you want them to be real people, you have to invest them with a humanity that goes beyond the, the cliches of their everyday life. And, and they want mm. you to. Like, they're, they're mm. calling out for that. I don't know. That's... Uh, you might be onto something, Ryder. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I think, yeah, when you... Phrase it that way. It's like taking an, a Norman Rockwell painting and telling the like untold story. Right. Exactly. You know, like the, or it's like use, it's like making a movie out of miniatures or something. You know, it's like doing something mm-hmm. sort of self consciously crafty to point to the craftiness and and show you how we think of stories and how we think of history. So it'd be like the Norman Rockwell mm-hmm. painting where they're there with the turkey on Thanksgiving, and then the little boy turns and says, "My father is touching me." <laughs> Wow. Like that? Tom, like what a, a deep dark. read from you, too. Just, I mean, um, if I wrote it. All right. I want to hear from listeners, because I'm sure tons of our listeners read this book yes. last year. Um, yeah. So please tweet at us, come to our Facebook page, and tell us what you think of Manhattan Beach. Um, did you enjoy it? Did you find it cheesy? Am I crazy? <laughs> That's a separate Not question. Not mutually That's exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> 